Just a really disappointing season for the Atlanta Hawks this year. And really from start to finish, they just never quite got it together, never were quite able to recapture the magic that led them to an appearance in the conference finals last season. And looking back with hindsight, it is possible that we overvalued last year's run slightly, or at least I did. In the first round, they go up against that weird Knicks team. And based on how the Knicks performed this year, I'm just not sure how impressive that victory was, that first round victory. And then in round two, on paper at least, it's a really tough matchup against the number one seeded 76ers. But below the surface, it, things were really starting to unravel there. And they were definitely in the midst of a, a major chemistry crisis with that team, given what played out after that series. The conference finals, they did go toe-to-toe with the eventual champion Milwaukee Bucks. So that's really impressive. But to me, it just never really felt like that series was in doubt. But still, I mean, they were able to take them to six games, I believe. I still feel as though this was a really impressive run. You can only play the team in front of you from the Hawks' perspective. And I don't think that anyone just accidentally finds themselves in the conference finals. So you would expect a young team like that to build off of that momentum or at least maintain it and not take such a giant step back as they did this year. Even in a more competitive Eastern Conference this year, I would have expected them during the regular season to be fighting for home court in the first round. And then postseason wise, even if they were ousted in a first round series, I would have expected it to be a really competitive series. And just neither of those scenarios played out. Even though it was a five-game series, it could have easily been a swept had the Heat not taken their foot off the gas in game three. I really feel as though this series could have been a sweep. And for Atlanta, just too many times, it felt like the effort just wasn't there. And based on comments from Trey Young early in the season, the team was just bored with the regular season as a whole. And that's really concerning, especially for a young team that hasn't accomplished anything yet. It's just a very dangerous attitude. And if you watch that Heat Hawks series, the results of that attitude that they had in the regular season were on full display come postseason time. The Heat beat the Hawks to nearly every loose ball, played way more physically and just generally out tough them at every turn. And on paper, at least, I would say that Atlanta is a, a much more talented team, but the chemistry, toughness, desire, all the intangible stuff was just really completely in the Heat's favor. I think a lot of that lack of effort and fight can be attributed to what Pat Riley calls the disease of more. After a team has a successful season, particularly a young team like the Hawks, everyone wants more, more touches, more money, more shots, just more, more of everything. And if you think about this team, most of the guys on this roster probably feel like they're deserving of more. Danilo Gallinari was a vet who signed here and was probably expecting to have a major role. And that was probably what was pitched to him before he came to Atlanta. But now he's relegated to coming off the bench. Same with Bogdan Bogdanovich. He had issues with the Kings having to take a backseat and come off the bench for Buddy Heald and just not getting the touches that he felt he deserves. And now he's coming off the bench for this Hawks group. DeAndre Hunter, Cam Reddish when he was on the team, and Kevin Herter are all young players who have shown some real flashes of being very productive players in this league. And as they continue to progress and develop, they're expecting to have a bigger role and have more responsibilities. But that just hasn't been the case, particularly with Herter. He's been basically delegated to this Kyle Korver spot up shooter role, but he's a guy that has shown he can do much more than just that. Even John Collins, he's pretty much been disgruntled 
ever since Trey Young got here with his role, he's supposed to be the second option here, I feel like, but he's basically just stand in the corner or stand in the dunker spot guy. He's shown that he can do a lot more than that. They just have way too many dudes with way too many expectations for what their role should be. And when they all don't feel like they're getting a fair shake, when most of your roster feels like they're not getting a fair shake here, there's going to be a lack of effort. It's hard to stay motivated on the defensive end and want to hustle for a team when you don't feel like you're getting as much as you should be. That gets me to Trey Young, the person I feel who is most responsible for the step back that this team took this season. And you might be expecting me to just completely kill him and bury him for this dreadful playoff performance that he just had, but it's not totally what I'm going to do. I mean, obviously he was really bad offensively and yes, he's nothing but a turnstile on defense. He was terrible in the playoffs. There's really no two ways about it, but the heat were just a really bad matchup for him. And guess what? Players have bad playoff series. It happens. It's, it's okay. I'm not going to write him off completely or say that he's soft as a player. Like some of the talking heads might on ESPN. I don't really watch much of their programs anymore, but I'm not going to do that. I think that it's not going to be an indictment on his career moving forward. I think he can get it back together. So I'm not going to kill him too much, but the issues that the Hawks had and the issues that Trey Young had this season are just part of a much bigger, much more macro problem with this team. It's what made the Heat such a bad matchup for the Hawks and what made them less resilient in terms of overcoming a bad matchup. Last season, during that huge run to close out the regular season and they carried that momentum into the playoffs, it appeared as though Trey Young had learned to trust his teammates. He learned to lead the team as a franchise player and a floor general point guard, knowing when to kind of take over and when to take a step back and let the other guys cook. And this year, all those lessons that he appeared to learn last season seem to have just gone in one ear and out the other you would have expected that Trey Young's usage rate, time of possession, the stats like that, you would have expected those to go down now that they really have a talented roster around him, as opposed to during the times a couple of years ago when he was really forced to carry the team because they just didn't have a, a group of talented players. And it's, it's especially weird with a young team where a lot of the guys on this roster took major strides in the playoffs last season and were showing themselves to be really solid players. You would just think that he would continue to kind of take a step back and dial back his ball dominance to give those guys, your Kevin Herters, your DeAndre Hunters, even John Collins, you would have expected him to kind of take a step back to give those guys some room to grow and develop and just to continue to take that burden off of himself of, of having to carry the team. But that's just not what happened. Trey Young pretty much doubled down on the ball dominant stuff this year. His usage rate was up from last year, and it was barely below what it was in his second season, his career high for that. He was third in time of possession this season, just behind Harden and Luka at 8.7 minutes a game. Let that sink in for a second. Trey has the ball in his hands nearly an entire quarter of every game. That's just absurd. And then he also led the league in dribbles per touch at, at roughly 5.8 and time per touch at 6.3 seconds. So every time the ball goes to him, he has it for about six seconds. That, that's a lot. That's a, it's, it shows that he's not moving the ball. 
Last season, he was about 8.8 for time of possession. So it's slightly down from last season, 6.13 seconds per touch and 5.73 dribbles per touch. So a few of those numbers are statistics are down from last year. A few of them are up either way. I would have really expected it to be significantly down across the board for those ball dominant stats. I would have expected Trey young to continue to dial that back now that some of the guys on the roster are really developing and growing, but it's just kind of more of the same, or in some cases it's kind of worse than ever. And even from a philosophical standpoint, I don't really understand the desire to run a heliocentric offense around Trey, we've already seen the best version of this offense, the Houston Rockets. They spent years building that system and perfecting it. And they had arguably the best player to run it in NBA history with James Harden. And that entire roster was built full of surrounding pieces that were perfect for that system. And they, that team was never able to get over the hump. So why then with Trey young, who was just a smaller version of Harden in terms of like you trying to run that offense, she's, you know, a lot smaller in stature. And then you also have a roster full of players that are not meant to just stand in the corner and shoot threes. Why would you think that that was going to be a, a winning way to play basketball? And that kind of gets me to the title of the video. This summer, the Hawks are absolutely at a crossroads in terms of how they want to move forward in building this team with the goal of winning a title. I think they really need to sit Trey down and have a come to Jesus moment, the owner, the GM, the coach and Trey. They need to be really blunt with him and just ask how important is winning to you, because right now it feels like that winning is important to him, but it's not as important as being the reason that the team wins. So they really need to see if he's committed to getting off the ball more to let the other guys cook and you can use his threat of shooting threes and particularly those deep threes to kind of open things up for the other guys with a lesser workload you would also have to expect him to buy in a lot more defensively trey is never going to be a good defensive player just at his size but he can't be the level of defender that allows a guy like pj tucker to call for a clear out and get an easy basket that that just can't you can't be a winning nba player and have a guy like pj tucker just easily getting buckets on you if trey commits to playing less with the ball and being less ball dominant and if he buys in defensively then this team can kind of stay the course with what they're building continue to let guys like herder and hunter develop but maybe think about pushing the chips in here for another star player i think that bogdan has shown enough as a shot creator and, and just a general offense creator that he can be the guy to create when either Trey is on the bench or off the ball. So I don't really know that the Hawks need another, a guy like Damian Lillard or Bradley Beal, a, another ball dominant guy since they have Bogdan, I guess if they include bogey in the deal, it's fine, but I would be looking to add more of an off ball type guy. Someone who down the stretch of the game won't take away from what Trey does best and won't have his game suffer from playing beside Trey and, and vice versa. I'm not sure who that player would be. I, I look at a guy like Tobias Harris. He's not exactly a star player by, by any means, but I think that could work. He plays a lot better off the ball as like a secondary scoring option or even a third scoring option. And I think Philly would be kind of eager to get out of that, that bad salary 
Also, there's Julius Randle with the Knicks. I think he should have more. He, he's been on the ball more with the Knicks, but I think that to utilize him to the best of his abilities to, to kind of accentuate what he does well, I think he needs to move more off the ball. And also, I think the Knicks would be happy to just kind of give him away. So I think you could get a really good deal for Julius Randle if you tried to trade for him. And then with all the stuff going on with the Utah Jazz, Rudy Gobert wouldn't be a bad player to trade for either. That'd be a a pretty good upgrade on Clint Capella. They do very similar things. It's just Gobert is a better version of that. So I, I think you could probably get a pretty good deal on him too. But I really think that they should at least give the Pelicans a call about Zion. It's not likely to happen, but maybe the Pelicans are looking to get out of the Zion media circus after having a really great season, or maybe they just aren't ready to commit the big money it's going to take to resign him. So maybe you can talk them into, into trading him. I, I don't know. I doubt it, but I, th- I would at least make the call. And they could just run it back with this group if Trey is committed to playing off the ball more. But with such a deep team, I think they should really try to make that two-for-one or three-for-one swap to make some major upgrades on the wing or like the big man department. In the case that Trey Young says, no, this is the way that I play. I'm not going to change for anyone. This is my game. This is the way I like to play basketball. I think they really need to shake up this roster. If Trey is hell-bent on playing this ball-dominant style, I would try to build this team sort of like the 0176ers, just a bunch of guys who are awesome at defense to make up for the fact that my best player sucks on defense and hope that he can carry us enough offensively to make it work. That's pretty much what the 76ers did with Iverson. They, you know, He was absolutely the number one scoring option, but was really the only scoring option for that team. And then it was guys like Matambo and, and Eric Snow, Aaron McKee, just good defensive players kind of surrounding him that weren't going to get in the way of him offensively in terms of wanting the ball. So let's try to get three guards, including Trey, four wings and two centers, just for argument's sake, and try to build like a fantasy roster to the, to kind of this style among the guys currently on the team. I would pretty much be gutting this roster. I I think there are a lot of guys that you can keep, but in terms of how this team is going to play and look, it's going to be, pretty much totally different. I think you can keep Herder, Hunter, Capella, and DeLon Wright in this case. Capella can do a really good Dikembe Mutombo impression. Or as I've mentioned, you could go all in to acquire a guy like Rudy Gobert who could basically do a, a nearly flawless Dikembe Mutombo impression. DeLon Wright has shown enough this postseason as a rotation guy to play alongside Trey Young as kind of the more defensive-minded guard to be that Aaron, I mean, sorry, Eric Snow or Aaron McKee type guy. Herter, as sort of a spot-up shooter and occasional shot creator can work, he's never going to be the high-usage, high-volume shooting guy. So I think you could get away with keeping him in, in this sort of scenario. Hunter, another guy, really good defensively, and like Herter, is never going to be a real ball-dominant guy. So I think he works on the roster. Gallinari, while he he doesn't want the ball a lot in terms of having to dribble the air out of it, or he's not a high-usage rate guy, he's just so bad on defense. So I don't know if you could keep him. I could be talked into either keeping him or getting rid of him for this like 0176er style team. I think Collins has to go. He wants the ball slash shoots too much. And 
I think I can leverage him into another defensive minded player. I think I could deal him to get back a, a really solid piece. Bogdan is the same deal as Collins. He just wouldn't fit with this 01 76er style template. I think if the if the Hawks are wanting to move into this direction for more of a defensive-minded team, I think they should give a call to the Nets about Ben Simmons, maybe do some type of John Collins for Ben Simmons swap. I wouldn't really be willing to give up too much more than that, but I think that you could get Simmons at a at a pretty low price. I would love to get my hands on Pat Patrick Beverly or Jose Alvarado, but I doubt you're going to be able to trade for either. So in terms of free agency for the guards, I could see you going for either Ricky Rubio or Alfred Payton wing wise. I there'll be Markeith Morris on the, on the market for a lower value guy, Torian Prince, Robco, Robert Covington, or Derek Jones Jr. I think those are all good options for this more defensive-minded team. Center-wise, I think a Capella and a Kongwu group is good enough to get the job done. Or if a Kongwu gets dealt, like in a in a Rudy Gobert swap, I think Thad Young would be good as like more of a switchable small ball five type guy. Or you could go with JaVale McGee, Bismack Biombo, Hassan Whiteside. I think those are all find backups to give you in that 10 to 18 minutes a game type role. There's always plenty of options for shot blocking centers through free agency at good value. Basically the idea here is everything would run through Trey offensively. And then defensively, you have a bunch of switchable interchangeable wings, some defensive minded guards and shot blocking centers. So at the end of this process, if Trey is wanting to stick with the ball dominant style, I think the team I would have would look something like a starting backcourt of Ricky Rubio and Trey Young with DeLon Wright off the bench. Wings-wise, we've got Hunter and, and Ben Simmons as the starters with Herter and Derek Jones Jr. coming off the bench. Then you've got Gobert and a Kongwu as the backups, or if you have to give up a Kongwu in one of these deals, uh, Gobert and JaVale McGee. I think that gives you enough defensively that you would be really good in spite of having Trey Young. You have an elite rim protector with tons of big athletic switchable wings and guards who can defend the other team's point guards so Trey Young doesn't have to. It's pretty easy to hide Trey Young out there with this group. But at the end of the day, this just isn't an ideal way to build a team. It's not ideal to have a bunch of non-offensive players to account for the fact that your best player wants the ball all the time and can't play a lick of defense. So in an absolutely perfect world, it's the scenario I mentioned before where Trey Young agrees to, to take a step back and the Hawks can continue to stay the course with the team that they're building. I don't expect the Hawks, even if Trey Young decides to stick with a more ball dominant style, I wouldn't expect them to go all in on defense, but I feel that's the only way that they can win if Trey Young decides he's going to stick with this ball dominant style. Regardless, the Hawks have tough decisions ahead if they want to become title contenders in this league. And one thing is clear, the path they are currently on is not one that's going to lead to an NBA championship. If you do enjoy the podcast, please be sure and rate it as well as follow us. Also, if there's a spot that you agree with, disagree with, you can either reach out to us on YouTube or on Twitter, and we'd love to discuss it with you. If someone had told me before the season started over the summer that Kyrie Irving, James Harden, and Kevin Durant would all be healthy entering the playoffs and were healthy for the playoffs, but the Nets were going to be swept in the first round, I might have asked if time travel was invented and someone brought the dream team back. 
this was just about as tumultuous a season as we have seen in the NBA, but it's really hard to feel bad for the Nets since most of this was self-inflicted. And I really don't even know where to begin with this just insane season from the Nets. So let's just try to dive right into it. I, I guess, first of all, how crazy is it to think that after three seasons with the Nets, this Kyrie and Durant led group would only have one playoff series win to show for it. Just one playoff series win in three years with this team. And given the fact that Kyrie is a free agent this offseason, that might just be where this story ends. And I know Kyrie has said that he's going to resign with the team and that he's looking forward to managing this team with Kevin Durant and Sean Marks moving forward. But Honestly, I trust Kyrie about as far as I could throw him. So who knows what he's going to end up doing with his free agency. And as far as the management piece of that, like you have to just love that level of delusion from Kyrie Irving. Like would anyone trust Kyrie to run their bath, much less than much less an NBA franchise? I feel like in either situation there, either be it a bath or an NBA team, he's just bound to make everything worse. I could see Kyrie saying something like, well, I didn't want to waste water since it's a scarce resource, so I put sand in the tub instead. Also, does Kyrie think that he's nearly the same level of player that Kevin Durant is? And that's not even mentioning, like, what is what gives him the right? What does he think? What does he think gives him the right? He's played 103 regular season games with this team in three years. So he's barely been around. So why would anyone care what he has to say within that organization? I would say that Kyrie needs to read the room, but Kyrie is just a different dude. He's never going to do that. Never going to be that type of guy. As far as the Nets season went, listen, obviously it was a huge disappointment, but given everything that they had to go through, it could have been so much worse for them. Entering the year, they were title contenders, and then right off the bat, they have to deal with this weird Kyrie situation where because of his vaccination status, he's only going to be available part-time, so the team just says screw it and sends him home. And that was just a huge distraction right at the start of the year. And then because of that, it, it just seems like James Harden was kind of counting on Kyrie being there. Of course, I mean, of course he was. And it seems like Harden's plan was just to be sort of coasting through the regular season and kind of play his way into shape because he came into this year just incredibly out of shape. And so that leads to James Harden getting frustrated with Kyrie and that whole situation. And then because Harden was so out of shape, Durant had to take on more of a more of a burden to carry the team. And so then Durant gets frustrated with Harden. And that kind of leads us to this version of James Harden that is everyone's favorite, the checked out version of James Harden. And while he's just mailing it in on the court, he never officially demanded a trade to my knowledge, but according to Woj, it was because he was afraid of potential backlash and that as if that story wouldn't come out. And even if that story didn't come out, we could just see the lack of effort. It was on full display on national TV for everyone to see. And then, so if he got traded, especially to a team like Philadelphia, everyone would have been left to assume that was what he wanted anyway. So it's, it's not as if he was going to come out looking great at giving up on the nets like 13 months after they traded for him. So they end up dealing James Harden for Ben Simmons, Andre Drummond, Seth Curry, and a couple of picks. And this for me remains probably the most difficult trade to evaluate in my lifetime in terms of trying to determine a winner on the 76ers side of things, yeah, great job. You turned Ben Simmons 
into James Harden, even in a vacuum, that's really great. But if you combine that with the fact that it was a version of Ben Simmons who was refusing to play basketball after one of the biggest meltdowns in playoff history, which is all of our most recent memory of him, that's basically a miracle. But also on the 76er side, when you're acquiring James Harden, he's in the last year of his deal and is eligible for this ludicrous contract extension, something like four years, $220 million. I would have real concerns about what that contract is going to look like even after next season, much less when Harden is moving into his late 30s. He just hasn't been that good this season. And the fact that he doesn't seem to take real great care of himself in terms of staying in shape, and he has put some serious miles and serious minutes on on his body during his tenure in Houston. And those Houston minutes were really demanding minutes where he was just carrying them offensively year in and year out. I think it might be starting to catch up with him. And this is what happens to most athletes as they hit their mid thirties. They just aren't the same player guys like LeBron and Tom Brady have made us forget that guys age and aren't good forever. So that's a real concern on the Philly side of this trade. They moved a lot of their depth and some future assets to make this deal happen. And so all of their eggs are in the James Harden basket now in terms of trying to be a title contender going forward. And that doesn't seem like it's going to be a recipe for success, at least so far this season. And you might be saying, well, they don't have to offer him the max, do they? I think if they didn't, someone else definitely would. And even if you do bring him back, there's just no guarantee he doesn't nuclear option his way out of town again mid-contract like he has with both the Rockets and the Nets. So there's just no guarantee this works out for Philly. But I guess given that they turned this disgruntled Ben Simmons into James Harden, it's hard to be too mad about it. On the net side of things, they have plenty to feel excited about too. They were put into a horrible situation where they basically had no choice but to deal James Harden to Philly. No one else was going to trade for Harden with half a year left on his contract and basically announcing to the world that he only wants to play in Philadelphia. So for the Nets to be able to really round out their roster, get some picks back and add a guy of Ben Simmons talent, it seems like a very good deal considering they weren't able to create a bidding war for James Harden like they probably would have liked. But Obviously, at the end of the day, Ben Simmons never even suited up for the Nets this season and thus begins this whole crazy Ben Simmons saga where at first he says he just needs a couple of weeks to ramp up and then he'll be ready to play again. Then he has a setback with the back and then we are waiting and waiting and waiting for him to come back. And then by the time the playoffs roll around, they say they're targeting like a game three or a game four for his return. But I knew and I'm on the record that I didn't think there was any chance that we would see him this season. I thought there was a 0% chance that he would play at all during the playoffs. Once, once we hit the playoffs and they're like, Oh, we're waiting to see him in the middle of a really tough Celtics series. That just didn't make sense to me. And for the net side of things, this just really isn't what they signed up for. They were expecting to have Simmons within a couple of weeks after trading hard. And so when Simmons just kind of strings the nets along as an organization for months of when he's going to play next, it's left them understandably frustrated. And I want to be as understanding to Ben's mental health as I possibly can be, but he's made this really difficult given his history to be empathetic towards him for this. 
before the season and with Philadelphia, he says basically, Hey, trade me. I'm never going to play for you guys again. And then Philly says, well, if you don't show up, we're not going to pay you. So he shows up to practice for like two days and then starts complaining about a back injury. And then he joins up with the nets, talks about how great he feels and it's just going to take him a couple of weeks to ramp up and he'll be back on the court. And he's really looking forward to it and this and that and the other. And then he starts complaining about that same back injury. So we're all left with some pretty legitimate questions. I feel like, how did he hurt the back again? He hasn't been playing. Like if it's the same back issue he had before the season even started, why wasn't he rehabbing and getting ready for his return? If this is a nagging injury, like a reoccurring issue in the back, that's obviously not good either. Back injuries are career altering type injuries. And now he's saying that, well, I have this mental block and the stress of a potential return to the basketball court is causing my back to hurt. And listen, all of those things could be true. Maybe his back was hurt when he was in Philadelphia before the season, before they asked him to show up. Maybe he was ready to go when he got to the Nets camp and then hurt it, hurt the back while he was ramping up. But once he joined the Nets and then maybe his stress is causing severe pain in his back. When I'm stressed out at work, I feel it in my shoulders. But if I had to get out there and play a basketball game for a couple million dollars, I think I could probably tough it out, but I don't know. So maybe, maybe, it, maybe all of this is true, but when you combine all of it together, it starts to sound just like too much of a coincidence. It just sounds to, it just starts to sound like a convenient excuse to get out of playing basketball. And if I'm the Nets, I'd be really worried about this moving forward. If, if he's making up the back thing, who's to say he's not going to continue to make up injuries to avoid playing when the pressure is on, like in the playoffs. And at this stage, it's with Simmons, it's pretty clear that he doesn't love basketball, but are we even sure that he likes it at all at this stage? Simmons is basically the same player he entered the league as. Sure, he's improved defensively, but that seems to at least be like a more of a question of effort when he was at LSU as opposed to talent. So when he kind of joined the NBA, he kind of put forth a lot more effort on that end defensively, and he showed himself to be you know, potential defensive player of the year type defender when he wants to be. But offensively, can anyone name one thing that he's improved at? One thing. There really, in my mind, just isn't anything that he's gotten better at. And if you look at his stats on his basketball reference page, he's basically the same player year after year. It's the same shooting percentage, same free throw, same three-point percentages roughly. And it's same rebounds, assists, points. It's all, it all looks the same. A dude who loves basketball would be in the gym, improving their game and adding to it year after year. That's something that even a guy as talented as LeBron has added over the years. Every year, it seems like he comes back with a different wrinkle, a different tool in the toolbox, something new. And it's because he's a gym rat. We haven't seen Ben Simmons in the time he's been in the league add anything at all. And as, as bad as Harden is when he demands a trade, at least he shows up to work, even if it is the mailing and inversion. At least he's out there playing and available. So how could we not question Ben Simmons' love for the game in this situation? We've already seen players like Larry Sanders walk away from the game because of the pressure. It, it became too much. And 
Ben Simmons may very well decide to do the same thing. He may decide this is too much. I'm, I'm going to walk away. And I understand that. Listen, these guys live under a microscope where every move, every word, every decision they make is criticized and critiqued. That's a lot to deal with. And at the end of the day, not everyone can deal with that. As far as how the net season ended up, there's plenty of blame to go around here, but I've seen two people blame the most for their failings, and it's the classic ones. The team's best player in Kevin Durant and head coach Steve Nash. And while they aren't totally blameless here, I don't think they're the main problems with the Nets. It's just an oversimplification of what happened here. And it's just a classic take from the talking heads over at ESPN. It seems like they just never have a nuanced basketball take. For the Kevin Durant part of things, I agree. He had a bad series. He didn't shoot the ball well. And the Celtics defense really made life tough for him. But some of this Durant slander has gotten absolutely insane. The legacy stuff has just gotten really out of hand. I've seen people saying that Durant is no better than Allen Iverson. I don't know if I really need to explain why Kevin Durant and Iverson aren't on the same level. And listen, I love AI. I grew up watching basketball during his heyday. That was when I kind of really started to become an NBA fan. So I obviously love him. I think very highly of him. But having lived through that, Iverson is nowhere near as good as Kevin Durant. And I've seen some posts about how LeBron beat the same Celtics team back in 2018. And that's probably the dumbest thing I've seen so far. Even though the Celtics group is made up of basically the same players, it is not the same team as it was four years ago back in 2018. Tatum, Brown, and, and the rest of this group, they're now entering the primes of their career versus like, Tatum's rookie year back in the 2018 playoffs. So I, I just think that's a ridiculous take. But probably the one that bothers me the most is the people who are viewing Kevin Durant dif drastically differently based on the result of this series. This is his second year back from an Achilles tear. He's in his 15th season. There is likely going to be some regression here. And every player has had a bad playoff series. Every great player has. I don't think that 20 years from now, when we're debating how great Kevin Durant was, someone will be like, yeah, Durant's not an all-time great because remember that one really crazy net season where they got swept in the first round of the playoffs? Yeah, I'm not willing to consider Kevin Durant to be an all-time great for that. I don't care about the MVP, the scoring titles, and the fact that he was finals MVP on quite possibly the greatest team of all time. No, the fact that he got swept in the first round that one year. Yeah. I can't consider him an all-time great anymore. That's, that's just ridiculous. And I've seen some wild stuff about this being the series that pushed him outside of the top 10 of all time. And I'm sitting here like when, when was Kevin Durant considered a top 10 player of all time outside of winning the title this season? I don't think he really has a case to be there when you actually sit down and start to make the list. He just isn't there. And, and this is in no particular order, but let me just name off a couple names here. We have Michael Jordan, LeBron, Kareem, Bill Russell, Wilt Chamberlain, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, Kobe, Tim Duncan. I don't think he has a case over any of those guys. And that's nine names already. I haven't even mentioned Shaq, Hakeem, Dr. J, Oscar Robertson, guys like that. So 
he's just not a top 10 player in league history. He never was. Now, at the end of his career, if he is able to somehow turn this Nets thing around and win a couple more titles, sure. But if this is how his career ends up, he just doesn't have a case for it. For the Nash piece of this, sure, like Kevin Durant, this was not a good series for Steve Nash. He just didn't coach well, but I don't think he deserves to be fired. The reality is that they had both Ben Simmons and Joe Harris out. That's over $50 million in payroll they couldn't put on the court for this Celtics series. Do Ben Simmons and Joe Harris get them over the top as far as winning a series against the Celtics goes? Maybe, but probably not. I think it does make it a a more closely contested series. All of these games were very close. I think the the total spread for the series was like 12 points for the between the four games. So I think it's it's probably a six or seven game series if you have those guys based on based on how close the games actually were. But regardless, that's a huge portion of your team's payroll. And it's what likely led the Nets into a situation where the fans were upset with the lack of adjustments that Nash made to the rotation throughout that series. It's just a bad roster without those two. And and isn't that great? Even if you have them, there just weren't a lot of moves to make. And it's a team that's just basically full of small guards and slow big men and nothing else. Adjustments wise, he pretty much tried everything he could. He ran Blake Griffin out there until Griffin was on the verge of collapsing And he even went to this weird four-guard lineup with Kevin Durant at the five. And for that four-guard lineup, it was able to keep scoring pace with the Celtics, but defensively they were the equivalent of using wet tissue paper or wet toilet paper to try and stop a bullet so that it didn't work out. I don't blame him for going to that lineup when wing-wise it's basically either Kessler, Edwards, or Bruce Brown. That's just not enough depth on the wing. And as good as Goran Dragic is, they really just shouldn't have cut James Johnson to make room for him. Johnson is a big physical wing, and that was something they were sorely lacking in this series, even though Dragic is a much, much better player. Then big-wise, Nash had the choice of LaMarcus Aldridge and Blake Griffin, neither of which have been good in probably five years they have young big man Nick's Claxton, Nick Claxton, who is as likely to make a free throw as I am winning the lottery. And then Andre Drummond, who's just been kind of bouncing around from team to team as a backup center. So none of those are really great options to go to. So what would you have wanted Nash to do? What, what should he have done? What adjustments should he have made? It just isn't a good team. The one area I will criticize Nash for is the lack of motion and over-reliance on the star players on this team. Nash played under D'Antoni, and you can see the influence of that heliocentric offense on the Nets. Like I mentioned, the offense is just really your turn, my turn, ISOs with Kyrie and Kevin Durant, and everyone else just kind of go stand in their spot. So they also mix in like an occasional pick and roll up top with Bruce Brown doing like a short roll and either going to the basket, hitting a floater or or lobbing it to somebody like Claxton and relying on tough two point shots in the half court is just, that's just never going to be a way to win. So that would be my one criticism for Nash. 
Now, maybe that's what Kyrie and Kevin Durant want to do. Maybe this is the way that they want to play, and this isn't up to Steve Nash. If that's the case, they really need to consider reshaping this roster into more of a defensive-minded team, just a bunch of big defensive athletic players who can make an odd three here and there. I think that would be the way to go if it's just going to be your turn, my turn, ISOs with Kyrie and Durant, and that's that's all we're going to do. I think Kyrie Irving deserves a lot more blame than he's getting. I haven't seen him thrown around on ESPN hardly at all as far as being blamed for this series. And on paper, his numbers look okay, I guess. But if you go back and watch that series, he just disappeared out there far too often. It's really, It was really easy to just forget he was out there. And when you're listening to the broadcast, you can hear the announcers just keep harping on this saying like Kyrie needs to be more aggressive. Kyrie needs to take over. They just kept saying that it just, it just never happened. Obviously Ben Simmons deserves a lot of blame when the team made the deal to acquire him. They expected to have him and expected to actually acquire him. It just left a huge hole on this roster. And it was one that they couldn't recover from when Simmons decided he just wasn't going to show up. Looking ahead to the off season, it, might seem pretty simple for the Nets on paper. Just get healthy, bring everyone back. But as has been with the case with this Nets group all year, it's just far more complicated once you get beneath the surface. They first and foremost have a big decision to make with Kyrie Irving. And of course, it's a decision that they might not get to make if he decides to walk. I know he said he's he wants to re-sign with the team, but all players say that. Paul George said that he wanted to play with OKC until he retired. And then like a year later, he's demanding a trade. And then even with the Nets, within the last couple of years, James Harden said he wanted to re-sign the extension this offseason. And then a couple of months later, he was asking out. Kyrie is a different dude to begin with. So a lot can change from between now and July. So who knows what he ends up doing. If he does decide that he wants to come back, Kyrie is eligible for a five-year, $246 million contract. And at 30 years old, are you going to be willing to give him five years? What is that going to look like towards the back half of that deal? Small guards, and particularly small score-first guards, just don't have a history of success in this league much after the age of 30. And that's setting aside all the other nonsense you get with Kyrie Irving. So how confident are you that he's going to show up day after day. If I'm the Nets, I would seriously consider or start to consider at least a life without Kyrie Irving. As an example, Chicago's Zach Levine is a free agent and he's looking for the max. Chicago has seemed very hesitant to give it to him. And based on what both the Bulls and Levine are posting, it seems like they're both kind of in a place where they're going to be happy to move on from one another. So I think they should consider some type of sign and trade thing where Kyrie gets sent off somewhere else and you make room for Zach Levine. Levine is a downgrade. That's for sure. But he's a bigger version of the same archetype as a player that score first guard, but you can count on him to show up for work every day at the very least. And that's not a given with Kyrie. So if I'm the Nets, I'm willing to take a a downgrade in terms of talent to get a guy who's going to show up more consistently, not show up in terms of big games, but, literally just show up for practice and games as in be in the building and speaking of showing up for work is there any guarantee that ben simmons is showing up anytime soon 
even if he does, are we sure that a New York-based team with title aspirations is going to be the best fit for him, given how he's been dealing with pressure lately? What about some type of Ben Simmons for Rudy Gobert swap? I have to imagine the Jazz are going to be entering a rebuild or at least are very likely to want to move off of Rudy Gobert. For the Gobert side of things, he's going to add a serious defense and serious rebounding punch, and that's something that the Nets are sorely lacking. So with Kyrie slash Levine and, and Kevin Durant, they should be with fine with Gobert bringing – basically nothing to the table offensively outside of a lab, a lob threat. I think that either Kyrie or Levine and Kevin Durant can give you enough of a scoring punch to that. You are still going to be a very effective offensive team. Other than that, just try to round out this roster more thoughtfully. I don't think that bringing in a team of slow washed up centers and old guards is the way to go role player wise in terms of what they already have on the roster they're going to be returning Seth Curry, Dayron Sharp, Cam Thomas and Joe Harris. Those guys are guaranteed to be back unless they're traded. There's also a 6 million dollar player option for Patty Mills that I have to imagine he's taking. I doubt he's getting 6 million dollars from anyone else on the market. And then there's also a 1.5 million dollar team option for Kessler Edwards. I would bring back Edwards under that arrangement. He's pretty decent from the games I've seen and He's just a big wing, six foot eight. He can play either the three or the four. And he shoots a pretty decent three ball on a decent volume, given how few minutes he played. He's also super young and should theoretically be improving kind of heading into next season. I'm not going to count on him being like a starting caliber player, but at $1.5 million, there's just very little risk involved, especially since it's at a position that the Nets are desperate to get some help at. And it's a hard spot to fill that that flexible wing spot is, is really hard to find guys on good value guys. Bruce Brown is an unrestricted free agent this offseason. He's reportedly looking for something like 12 to 14 million dollars per year. And I actually think you have to try and match that if you're the Nets and just hope he shows you loyalty. Hope if you match any other offer uh, that another team is willing to give him that he's just willing to come back to play for you just out of loyalty. And I don't love paying Bruce Brown that much money, but there just isn't an alternative on this roster currently that can fill in for that role. And they don't have the cap room to go out and get someone else. Even if you don't like that figure, I just don't see an alternative. Claxton is a similar picture. And although I think he's less necessary as a point of emphasis compared to Brown, I, I, I still think that they might want to consider bringing him back. Claxton is a restricted free agent, so the Nets are going to have a chance to match any offer that he gets. And I think as the Nets, I wouldn't really be willing to match anything in that $10 million a year range, although I really doubt anyone is going to be offering him $10 million a year or more based on his playoff performance. If someone wants to really get crazy and offer him like a $12 to $15 million a year, I, I, I'm letting him go at that. I'm letting him walk. The rest of this free agent group, I can really take or leave, honestly, this Drummond, Dragic, Blake Griffin, LaMarcus Aldridge group. I'm letting Blake Griffin and LaMarcus Aldridge go for sure, and that might end up being a career for both of them. I don't know if anybody's going to bring back either one of them. I think LaMarcus Aldridge is certainly going to be a career. I can see someone taking a flyer on Blake, but this is pretty much, this will probably be the last year for Blake, even if, if he does even get picked up. 
Dragic, I'm only going to bring back in the case that Mills doesn't come back. I just don't see the need for Dragic, Curry, Mills, and Kyrie on the same team. So I think either one of Mills or Dragic is, is fine. And Drummond, I really don't know what to do with. If he comes back for like a limited role, uh, limited minutes on a minimum deal, then sure, bring him back. But if he's expecting like more money, more minutes, more more touches, any of that, anything other than like you're guaranteed to have 10 to 18 minutes a game, I, I think I'm letting him walk. Outside of that, I really want to see Cam Thomas and Dayron Sharp get some minutes next season. We've seen both the Nets and the Lakers this year with a team full of old geezers, as Charles Barkley likes to put it. Uh, That team just, those teams just don't win in today's league. So getting playing time and experience to a few of those young guys you already have on your roster might make all the difference come playoff time. Both Sharp and Thomas have shown flashes of being productive players in this at the NBA level. So if you're the Nets, I think you have to give them an opportunity to take that next step as a player. Other than that, they need to round out this roster with some undrafted slash G league guys, players who are going to be content, just kind of running the floor, spotting up and playing defense. Maybe you're able to find some vets willing to do that, but I would be really hesitant to do the whole old as dirt team thing over again. I just think it's so important for them to bring in guys who are going to be hungry and can bring some level of energy. And that's typically your average G League guy or undrafted rookie as opposed to your year 16 veteran. I think that if the Nets put together a more balanced roster in terms of having wings, guards, and bigs, as opposed to just small guards and slow bigs, there's no reason they can't be title contenders again next season. Only time will tell, though with so much up in the air and so much drama entering the offseason.